Amen. I want to invite you to grab your Bible and turn with me to John chapter 11. Book of John chapter 11. If you are looking in the Pew Bible, you ought to find it on page 1143. We have been uh, making our way this year through the through the minor prophets, and uh, I couldn't help but as we were singing that last song, I didn't plan it that way or anything. But uh, I was thinking about the the promise that God speaks through the prophet Joel at the end of his book about uh, there being the Lord dwelling in Zion. And this stream of water and milk and wine that flows from the mountain of God. And as we just sang uh, these words from Fanny Crosby, Jesus, keep me near the cross. There a precious fountain, free to all, a healing stream flows from Calvary's mountain. And so we are we're moving this morning from, from promise to fulfillment. And um, one of the things that is striking when you read the accounts of the gospel is when, you know, sometimes when you've read through a book before and you know how it ends, you know the things that are really, really significant. You, you, you know the things that sort of foreshadow what is to come. And yet, we, we know that the crucifixion and the resurrection are these singularly crucial events that Jesus came to fulfill, and yet none of the gospel writers really rush to that. There is uh, some patience there to, to tell us why this was. And so uh, today, next Sunday is, is Resurrection Sunday, which means that today is Palm Sunday, when we remember Jesus entering Jerusalem on the Sunday before his crucifixion. And this is a day that the gospel writers tell us about. And so the, the thing I want us to do today is ask, what can we learn about Jesus, about God, about ourselves by looking at this day and by not rushing past it, not rushing through it? And one of the primary truths that Palm Sunday has to teach us is that the crucifixion and resurrection were not events into which Jesus stumbled accidentally. They were events that had been planned from eternity past, promised through the Old Testament, and predicted by Jesus himself during his ministry. The, the crucifixion and resurrection were events toward which Jesus walked with eyes fully open. And so I want us to see that together as we read here in John 11. We're going to begin in verse 55. John writes, Now the Passover of the Jews was at hand, and many went up from the country to Jerusalem before the Passover to purify themselves. They were looking for Jesus and saying to one another as they stood in the temple, What do you think, that he will not come to the feast at all? Now the chief priests and the Pharisees had given orders that if anyone knew where he was, he should let them know so that they might arrest him. Six days before the Passover, Jesus therefore came to Bethany, where Lazarus was, whom Jesus had raised from the dead. So they gave a dinner for him there. Martha served, and Lazarus was one of those reclining with him at the table. Mary therefore took a pound of expensive ointment made from pure nard and anointed the feet of Jesus and wiped his feet with her hair. The house was filled 
with the fragrance of the perfume. But Judas Iscariot, one of his disciples, he who was about to betray him, said, Why was this ointment not sold for three hundred denarii and given to the poor? He said this not because he cared about the poor, but because he was a thief. And having charge of the money bag, he used to help himself to what was put into it. Jesus said, Leave her alone, so that she may keep it for the day of my burial. For the poor you always have with you, but you do not always have me. When the large crowd of the Jews learned that Jesus was there, they came not only on account of him, but also to see Lazarus, whom he had raised from the dead. So the chief priests made plans to put Lazarus to death as well, because on account of him, many of the Jews were going away and believing in Jesus. The next day, the large crowd that had come to the feast heard that Jesus was coming to Jerusalem. So they took branches of palm trees and went out to meet him, crying out, Hosanna! Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, even the King of Israel. And Jesus found a young donkey and sat on it, just as it is written, Fear not, daughter of Zion, behold, your king is coming, sitting on a donkey's colt. His disciples did not understand these things at first, but when Jesus was glorified, then they remembered that these things had been written about him and had been done to him. The crowd that had been with him when he called Lazarus out of the tomb and raised him from the dead continued to bear witness. The reason why the crowd went to meet him was that they had heard he had done this sign. So the Pharisees said to one another, You see that you are gaining nothing. Look, the world has gone after him. Now among those who went up to worship at the feast were some Greeks. So these came to Philip, who was from Bethsaida in Galilee, and asked him, Sir, we wish to see Jesus. Philip went and told Andrew. Andrew and Philip went and told Jesus. And Jesus answered them, The hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. Truly, truly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. Whoever loves his life loses it, and whoever hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. If anyone serves me, he must follow me, and where I am, there will my servant be also. If anyone serves me, the Father will honor him. Let's pause there, and we'll pray together. Lord, we thank you for your word. We thank you that you have... Um, spoken to us, and uh, that this is not merely a, a record of your word, but it is your word, which you have spoken by your spirit, and so it is therefore truthful, and it has your authority and your trustworthiness to it. We pray that you would help us in light of that to humble ourselves under your word, uh, Lord, that we would marvel at what you have spoken, and um, Lord, that we would Behold Jesus, full of grace and truth. Lord, lift our eyes to see him, and we pray all this in his name. Amen. Amen. Now, what we're going to summarize the, uh, the big idea of this whole passage in, in one simple sentence. So I'm going to try to sum up everything we just read in one sentence. It goes like this. Jesus is anointed by God and opposed by men. Two truths there that are simultaneously true. Jesus is anointed by God, and he is also opposed by men. We'll take each of those halves in turn. So starting with the first half, that Jesus is anointed by God. In chapter 11, uh, John tells the story of Jesus raising Lazarus from the dead, this incredible story, and it was the culmination of several signs that Jesus performed, signs that testified about 
who he was and about the kind of kingdom that he was bringing into the world. The kingdom of God that Jesus was bringing into the, into the world is a, a place where dead people will have life. But for the family of Lazarus, this sign, Jesus raising him from the dead, was personal, right? It was a cause for, for joy because their, their brother who had died was alive again. And it's not an accident that Jesus raises Lazarus in chapter 11 and that chapter 12 begins with this scene in which Lazarus' family honor Jesus. And so let's try to get our bearings here and try to place ourselves in, in, in space and time. John tells us in chapter 11, verse 55, that the Passover of the Jews was at hand. And in chapter 12, verse 1, he places this event six days before the Passover when Jesus came to Bethany. Bethany is where Lazarus and his sisters lived. Uh, Bethany was just outside of Jerusalem. So on one side of Jerusalem, you have the Mount of Olives, and Bethany was right on the other side of that mountain. And six days before Passover would have been Saturday night before Palm Sunday. So Saturday night, Jesus has, has arrived in Bethany just outside Jerusalem. This is the place where he would spend the week. He would sort of go every day from Bethany into Jerusalem and teach in the temple and that sort of thing. And, and it's easy to focus in this story on what Mary does, right? Because she's the one who takes the really expensive ointment and pours it on Jesus' feet and wipes his feet with her hair and all that sort of stuff. But all three siblings have a role to play in this meal. Martha serves, and from what we, what we read about her elsewhere, it's, it's unsurprising that she would be the one who would serve. Uh, John tells us that Lazarus reclines at the table. I mean, his very presence at the meal is a visible reminder of what Jesus um, had done when he called him out of the tomb because the guy who is sitting there at the table had been dead not so long ago. And then, of course, Mary anoints Jesus in this act of devotion and worship. John says that she took a pound of expensive ointment made from pure nard. Everything in that sentence is meant to emphasize the quality and the quantity of this act. So when you imagine this, what she's doing, I don't want you to have in your mind that Mary reaches into a tiny little pouch and pulls out a tiny little... Uh, jar with a tiny little dropper of essential oils, you know, and she's got here a little lavender for your feet, Jesus. No. When the word that John uses for pound is a word that equates to basically about half a liter. So think about roughly 16 or 17 ounces, somewhere between a 12 ounce can and a 20 ounce bottle of Dr. Pepper. That's how much oil she's pouring out here. It's not a small amount. And John says that it was expensive. It was made from pure nard. In fact, Judas comments kind of perversely that this could have been sold for 300 denarii. He, he would have been good at, you know, the price is right. That's, you know, 300 denarii, Bob. A denarius was the equivalent of a day's wage for a common laborer. So 365 days in a year on a non-leap year, minus 52 Sabbath days, minus other holy days, 300 denarii basically is a rough way of saying that's, about, that's worth about a, a year's wages. So however many thousands of dollars that would be, this is, this is a lot of money that just got poured out 
And of course, you know, Judas says, we could have fed a lot of poor people with that. And John lets us know that his intentions were not exactly pure in saying that. The point is, though, that this was a remarkably lavish offering, so much so that most people speculate that what she poured out here was either some kind of heirloom or it was something that the entire family would have had to save up to purchase. The point being that Mary is, is not acting only on her own accord, that this was something that the whole family had planned and purchased as an act of devotion and worship. But there's something even deeper to the significance of this anointing because we know that Jesus is called over and over throughout the Gospels and in the rest of the New Testament, He's called the Christ, the, the Anointed One. So this was a, a word that was used of Old Testament kings. Kings in the Old Testament were not inaugurated, they were not elected, they were anointed. They were set apart by God to say, this is the king. And here in John 12, Jesus' anointing is not only tied to his kingship, he also connects it directly to his burial. Because in just a few short days, he's going to be crucified and then he's going to be buried. And when he's buried, his body is going to be anointed once again with very expensive um, herbs and oils and all that sort of thing. And so it's as if Jesus is saying, listen, guys, Mary is acting in a way better than she even knows. Her anointing of Jesus is fitting because in six days his body is going to be anointed as he is buried. The one who has been anointed by God as king is also being anointed for death. And so that leads us very naturally to the second half of that big idea that Jesus is not only anointed by God, but he's also opposed by men. So the raising of Lazarus, it is this understandably crucial event. I mean, if, if there was somebody that we all knew of who he died, he was dead for four days, we all saw him in the casket, we saw them lower his body into the grave, and then all of a sudden you see him over at the Henderson Mall putting gas in his truck, that'd be a big deal, right? And so the raising of Lazarus was a big deal. It was a cause of, of, joy. of joy for his family. But for the religious leaders uh, who had been trying to arrest Jesus, it was a source of distress because they've been trying to say, no, no, we've got to find some way to shut Jesus up. And now all of a sudden we have a living, breathing, walking around testimonial to his power. And so glance back at, at chapter 11, verse 47. It says, So the chief priests and the Pharisees gathered the council and said, What are we to do? For this man performs many signs. If we let him go on like this, everyone will believe in him, and the Romans will come and take away both our place and our nation. Then in verse 53, John tells us, So from that day on they made plans to put him to death. Now, as you're imagining that group of people debating that and then deciding, okay, we've got to put this guy to death. I don't want you to sort of have in your mind a group of, of random men who are just, you know, shooting the breeze and blowing off some steam down at the co-op. This was an official gathering of the Jewish governing council known as the Sanhedrin. This would be like the equivalent of if somebody had said, we've got to assemble 
Congress or, or the Supreme Court or something like that. This is a, a very deliberative judicial decision when they make plans to put him to death. They are, they are signing a, a death warrant, as it were. It's important to understand, however, that Jesus was not a helpless victim of this violent opposition. He's not ignorant of it, nor is he unwilling to face it head on. It it, it might appear that way at first glance because after John tells us in verse 53 that they made plans to put him to death, John then says in chapter 11, verse 54, that Jesus therefore no longer walked openly among the Jews. So he finds out that People were were wanting to kill him, and he says, okay, maybe I need to withdraw from public ministry. And so it it was enough to make some people wonder whether he was even going to show his face at Passover at all. We read in verse 56, it says, they were looking for Jesus and saying to one another as they stood in the temple, what do you think, that he will not come to the feast at all? He's come every year. You think he's not coming this year? I don't know. But... Of course, he does, in fact, come to Jerusalem, and he he comes knowing full well what will happen to him there. It's it's really important, and I want you to see this, that Jesus, when he comes to Jerusalem, he doesn't come in and say, oh, no, I had no idea that there was a warrant for my arrest. I had no idea that these people wanted to, to kill me. Oh, I accidentally stumbled into this. I want you to notice the, uh, the transition between chapter 11 and chapter 12, right? So chapter 11 ends with the Sanhedrin issuing this warrant for his arrest. Verse 57 says, Now the chief priests and the Pharisees had given orders that if anyone knew where he was, he should let them know so that they might arrest him. So, I mean, this is the equivalent of, you know, there are signs plastered all over Jerusalem. Jerusalem's most wanted, big reward, 30 shekels of silver, Turn him in and, and we'll, we'll you know, make you a, a rich person, right? Now, chapter 12 begins, verse 1. Six days before the Passover, Jesus therefore came to Bethany. Now, let's, let's do a little exercise for a second. Are there any words, if, if John's just reporting to us the facts... Are there any words in chapter 12, verse 1, that are unnecessary? The word therefore is not necessary. All John needs to tell us is, six days before the Passover, Jesus came to Bethany. But he doesn't do that. He says, six days before the Passover, Jesus therefore came to Bethany. And anytime you see the word therefore, the the, the way we say it is, you ought to ask, what's it there for? You look back and say, why is this word here? And the point is that that John is connecting the dots for us. He links the order to arrest Jesus at the end of chapter 11 with his return to Bethany. So whether he knew about the, the warrant from someone, somebody told him, or whether he just knew supernaturally, that's not important. What seems clear is he did know they wanted to arrest him. They said, if anybody knows where he is, let us know so we can arrest him. Six days before the Passover, Jesus, therefore, because that was the case, because they wanted to arrest him, he came to Bethany before the Passover. And then the next day is Sunday when the triumphal entry takes place. So now Mary has anointed him. Um, There's even a plot to kill Lazarus. We got to get rid of this guy because he's a walking testimonial for Jesus 
And chapter 12, verse 12 says, The next day the large crowd that had come to the feast heard that Jesus was coming to Jerusalem. And John connects the dots between the crowd that witnessed Jesus raise Lazarus from the dead and the crowd that greeted him with palm branches. So he says in, in chapter 12, verse 12, there was a, a crowd that had come to the feast, heard that he was coming to Jerusalem. They took branches of palm trees. They went out to meet him, crying, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, even the King of Israel. John tells us that this was a fulfillment of, of Zechariah's prophecy, Fear not, O daughter of Zion. Behold, your, your king is coming, sitting on a donkey's colt. He says in verse 16, as he says, many times the disciples didn't understand this at first. Later, after he had been glorified, it made sense to them. They remembered about this and, and, and uh, about what had written about him and had been done to him. And then verse 17, it says this, The crowd that had been with him when he called Lazarus out of the tomb and raised him from the dead, continued to bear witness. So there was a, there was a crowd of people who, in chapter 11, had, had witnessed what he did when he stood at Lazarus' tomb and said, Lazarus, come out. There was a crowd of people. John tells us that when Lazarus came out, he smelled bad. So there was a crowd of people who could still remember the stench when Lazarus came out. They could still remember how funny he looked when he was still bound in the claws and he's kind of walking out and they had to unwrap him so that he could free his arms and legs and walk again. There was a crowd of people that that image and that smell had been burned into their mind and John tells us that they're going around Jerusalem telling everybody about it. And then he says in verse 18, the reason why the crowd went to meet him was that they had heard he had done this sign. Because that crowd of people in chapter 11 who had seen and, and, and witnessed what Jesus did, they're now going all over Jerusalem telling people, and that's why there's this huge crowd of people who show up with palm branches saying, Hosanna, Hosanna, save us, Lord, we please. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. And this, again, ignites the fury of the religious leaders. In verse 19, So the Pharisees said to one another, you see that you are gaining nothing. Look, the world has gone after him. Now, up to this point, if you were to, to start reading John's account of the gospel in chapter 1 and, and read straight through, by the time you get to chapter 12, you would have heard this phrase a few times already. It's a phrase that John repeats several times throughout the earlier chapters of this gospel. You hear it, for example, in chapter 7, verse 30, where John says, So they were seeking to arrest him, but no one laid a hand on him because his hour had not yet come. His hour had not yet come. In chapter 8, verse 20, These words he spoke in the treasury as he taught in the temple, but no one arrested him because his hour had not yet come. And here in chapter 12, something changes. It is like a a switch gets flipped. And it's crucial to notice what it is that triggers this change, what it is that trips this breaker. It might seem like the Pharisees are exaggerating when they say in verse 19, look, the world has gone after him, but it turns out they're speaking better than they know. Notice the next verse, verse 20. John says, Now among those who went up to worship at the feast were some Greeks, that is, Gentiles, people who were not ethnically Jewish, so these came to Philip, the Gentiles came to Philip, who was from Bethsaida in Galilee, and asked him, Sir, we wish to see Jesus. 
Okay, might not seem like a big deal at first. Jesus has some visitors, so what? He probably had a lot of visitors during his public ministry. But Philip and Andrew go and tell Jesus, Hey, Jesus, there are some, some Greek guys here. They said they want to see you. And notice his reaction in verse 23. And Jesus answered them, The hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. So over and over and over, his hour had not yet come. His hour had not yet come. His hour had not yet come. He had to tell his mom that in John chapter 2. Mom, my hour hasn't yet come. In John 7, some people wanted to arrest him, but John says they couldn't because his hour had not yet come. In John chapter 8, he said some things that made some people mad, but John says they couldn't do anything because his hour had not yet come. And now, suddenly, Jesus says, the hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. It is the, the arrival of these Gentiles to visit him that signals to Jesus, the hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. And this is the point where those two truths intersect, that Jesus is anointed by God and he is opposed by men. Both of those truths are present when Jesus says, the hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. What does he mean by that? Well, he explains, verse 24, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. So for Jesus, the path to glory is first through suffering. Before the grain of wheat can bear much fruit, it first has to die and be buried into the earth. Put another way, the opposition to Jesus, which will culminate in His crucifixion, is the instrument by which God shows to the world that He is the Anointed One of God. The, the reason why He is the Anointed One of God is because He was opposed by men to the point of death. So to borrow the language of Philippians 2, the one who was obedient to the point of death on a cross is the one whom God has highly exalted. So his death and his resurrection are God's testimony to him that he is the Christ, that he is the anointed one. This is why Jesus is going to say that he has to be lifted up because he has to be lifted up on the cross and then he's going to be lifted up in the resurrection and then he's going to be lifted up in the ascension. He's going to be lifted up and exalted to the right hand of God and then he says, I will draw all men to myself. But Jesus is not only our substitute in this. It's important that we see that what he does here is, is totally unique. He alone is the sinless anointed one of God. He alone is the one who bears the, the wrath of God for sin on the cross. But Jesus is also our example. Peter tells us that in 1 Peter 2, that Christ suffered for you, setting you an example that you might walk in His steps. And here in John 12, Jesus applies that same truth to us. In verse 25, He says, Whoever loves his life loses it, and whoever hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. Verse 26, If anyone serves me, he must follow me, and where I am, there will my servant be also. If anyone serves me, the Father will honor him. Notice, if anyone serves me, he must follow me. Which is to say, you have to follow me in the way of self-denial. If anyone would come after me, let him take up his cross and deny himself and follow me. 
And yet he also says, if anyone serves me, the Father will honor him. So we are not the anointed one of God, but by faith we can be united to the one who is. If anyone serves me, the Father will honor him. And those who follow Jesus are not called to bear the penalty of sin, but we are called to follow Him in the way of suffering. If anyone serves me, he must follow me. When we take the Lord's Supper, we are not only professing that we have trusted in Jesus to give us eternal life, we're also professing to follow Him in that path of self-denial. That's why it is only fitting for those who have been united to Jesus by faith to receive the bread and the cup, because to do otherwise would be to proclaim a lie. When we take the bread and cup, we're proclaiming with our actions what Paul articulated in Philippians 3. He said, Indeed, I count everything as lost because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For His sake I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ and be found in Him. Not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ. The righteousness from God that depends on faith. That I may know Him and the power of His resurrection and may share His sufferings, becoming like Him in His death. We're going to take a moment and, and prepare our hearts to receive the bread and the cup this morning. I just want to encourage you where you are to, to take a moment and pray uh, to borrow the words uh, that Paul gives us in Philippians 3, indeed I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. As Jesus, said, as Jesus put it, whoever loves his life loses it and whoever hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. So take a moment and pray, Lord, I, I want to count everything else as loss I want to not put any stock in my attempts at righteousness because I know that I uh, must find gain in Christ and be found in Him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ. We have no hope in our own righteousness, but we have hope in receiving the righteousness of God that depends on faith. So let's take a moment and pray and prepare our hearts to receive the bread and cup this morning. Lord Jesus, we are thankful that you endured the shame of suffering and of death, that you endured the wrath of God against our sin, that you bore the wages of our sin so that we might receive the gift of God in you, the gift of eternal life. We're thankful, Lord Jesus, that you who were without sin became sin for us so that in you we might become the righteousness of God. And I pray that as we prepare ourselves to receive the bread and the cup this morning, that none of us would trust in our own righteousness, in our own efforts, in our own works, but that we would trust only in you. Help us to look in faith to you. Help us to lean all of our hope 
upon you. And we pray all this in your name. Amen. Amen. All right, so I want to I invite you to grab your hymnal, and we're going to turn to number 235, When I Survey the Wondrous Cross. The first element that we take in the Lord's Supper is the bread, which helps us to remember and to proclaim the body of Jesus. When we take the bread, we are proclaiming a mystery that had been long hidden but was revealed in Christ, that the Son, who was eternally God, became also a man, taking a real human body and experiencing the fullness of humanity except without sin. And He did this in order to unite to Himself a people from every nation, tribe, language, and people. And so we're going to sing the first verse of number 235 together. I want to encourage you. There in the pew in front of you, you should uh, see a cup with uh, some bread in there. I want to encourage you to take that, hold the bread in your hand as we sing, and after we've sung this verse, we will eat together. So, number 235. the body of our Savior Jesus Christ, torn for you. Eat and remember. The second element that we take is the cup by which we remember and proclaim the blood of Jesus. The Psalms and prophets spoke on many occasions of the cup of God's wrath against sin being poured out in the wicked, draining it down to the dregs. Those are the words from Psalm 78. And on the night before His crucifixion, Jesus went with His disciples to the Garden of Gethsemane where three times He prayed, My Father, if it be possible, let this cup pass from Me. Nevertheless, not as I will, but as You will. And so as it turns out, the one in whom there was no wickedness is the one who drank the cup of God's wrath so that we who are sinners could drink the cup of fellowship. We're going to sing the second verse of When I Survey the Wondrous Cross, and I want to encourage you to hold the cup in your hand as we sing, and after we have sung this second verse, we will drink together. The blood of our Lord Jesus Christ shed for you. Drink and remember. In just a moment, we're going to sing uh, the last two verses of When I Survey the Wondrous Cross together. And this is an opportunity for us to, uh, to respond 
to the Word of God, which we have heard and which we've also seen and proclaimed together in the Lord's Supper today. Uh, I want to encourage you, as we do so, to uh, continue to allow our, our hearts and minds to ruminate upon the cross and upon the one who was nailed there in our place, condemned for you and for me. Let's pray together. Lord Jesus, we thank you for your love, for your holiness that drove you to, uh, to the cross. We're thankful, Lord Jesus, that you bore the weight of our sin. You who had no wickedness, no unrighteousness, the perfect, sinless, beloved Son of God who became accursed and condemned in our place. I pray, Lord Jesus, that you would help us today not to, uh, not to be bored by that, but that we would marvel at it, be amazed by it, be uh, joyful because of it, and Lord, that it would put in, into our hearts a desire to tell someone this good news. Lord, that you might draw someone else to you. We thank you, Lord Jesus, for your uh, grace and your mercy. Help us as we sing to look to you, and we pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's stand and sing these last two verses together. <clears throat> 